a challenge that is coming from digital currencies such as blockchain technologies. So I think it's important to share that anything can be tokenized. All the money. I like the idea of a gold standard. I mean, it could be used in a very um, cryptocurrency way. Very much sooner than a lot of people understand and think we will be all at a level playing field. Welcome, everybody. We are back after a few weeks of whirlwind travel and events and adventures. Would you, how would you describe the last couple of weeks, Jimmy? Tough on the liver, uh, <laughs> but but a great time. Obviously, we went to Consensus. We did. And uh, uh, we, we hosted the event at the vault, which was a ton of fun. Uh, made a bunch of new friends and wonderful relationships there. Um, then we went to we went to Vegas and wow what what a time in Vegas I uh, I'm still floating on air about the whole thing so super fun super fun I've been to many conferences in my day big ones little ones they're not usually that fun it's usually just kind of part of the deal of being in a particular yeah. industry this event in Las Vegas was just a unicorn of like fun positivity i mean there's a lot of people there and no matter where i went i'd run into somebody who had a badge on for the event and the, you just were like instant friends and they were just so genuinely excited to see me to talk to all of us like i never i've never had a experience like that let alone something that you would kind of call like an industry event i mean it was crazy fun it was crazy fun uh from the moment you know we got there uh well you know look when this stuff starts to really have all these connections start to be made and, you know, even like uh, the, the YouTube videos and all that stuff really started to happen, the influencer movement started to happen. It was all during lockdown, during COVID. So a lot of us have spent so much time on Zoom calls or, you know, on conference calls. It, it's like we intimately feel like we know these people, but we've never actually shared a beer or, you know, shaking their hand or giving them a hug and just you know you could tell it was so long overdue i mean we're like three i know there's tons of people that go back way back with with xrp and the xrp you know project there's a lot of people who went through you know 2017 2018 bull run the true ogs go way way back and we we met a whole bunch of those people um th this weekend but uh, for me, you know, the, the journey goes back to 2020 and I've really been like socializing with so many of these people and to, to see them, look them in the eye, you know, talk to them firsthand, like I said, share a beer and hang out was just, oh, it was just next level stuff. And like you were saying, it was, it was so positive, you know, what we've all been through. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it's amazing that you can have so many people with, with such belief and all that stuff that even though everything that we've gone through and this ridiculousness of our own government effectively attacking us, even if it's indirectly, um, and to come through that and be champions on the other side of that is, I don't know, it, 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 this, this, this will have stuck with me for a long, long, long time. One thing that stood out to me as a really big deal is, you know, Brad's channel and some of the stuff that I cover, you know, but many of us cover is highly speculative. Like we're trying to figure out the future of money. We're trying to figure out if there is, 
you know, some kind of plan for how money will be moved that we're not in on. I mean, a lot of it is decoding these sort of riddles and like piecing together data sources to try to paint this big picture. And so Brad, for example, has gotten some criticism over the years that maybe he's too speculative, that, you know, he's not right on the mark with some of this stuff. So for Brad Garlinghouse to attend this in person gives, in my opinion, a tremendous amount of credibility to the topics that we've been covering, specifically that Brad has been covering as sort of one of our leaders here. So if, if, if we were all way off the mark and crazy and wrong in a lot of these conclusions, I don't think the CEO of Ripple would have attended as the sort of special secret VIP guest. What would, what would you oh, I, I mean, I, I completely agree. Uh, that, that, that was one of the great things, you know, of my life to be able to uh, shake, shake hands with Brad Garlinghouse, who I've admired, you know, really since I learned about uh, uh, XRP and the XRPL project. Uh, I've, I've stated before, you know, I, I represented people exactly like Brad, I'm talking Garlinghouse now, in my prior life as a, as a corporate securities lawyer. And, um, you know, I would rank him his, his just demeanor, his disposition, his positive, you know, outlook on what's going to happen, but also his just ability to, you know, be calm in very high, intense pressure situation. He's a public company CEO, right? He's, and he's not only a public company, he's among the best. When, when Ripple goes public, when this shit show of a, of a case is over, and they're public, he is very well poised to be among the most elite CEOs in, in America, in international business. Um, I think I think he's loved by a lot more people than, than just us. I mean, I think um, other business, business persons and, and, you know, financiers, and um, I think there's a lot of people that really respect, um, uh, you know, him, and it, yeah, it was it was awesome to shake his hand, look him in the eye. You know, his words at at the event um, were were really you know heartfelt and uh, thanking us. You know, thanking the community for for you know going through everything we've we've been through for bringing attention to what was happening behind the scenes. I think they're they're very appreciative of that. Um, but yeah, that was. I mean, kudos to you know. Brad Kimes, his wife Danielle. Uh, I know DAI was was part of that too, um, and, and and maybe even a few other people behind the scenes. But uh, for for pulling all that off and making it happen, and it it was really really appreciated by everybody there. I mean, it was it was next level. It was really cool. Now putting an event like that on is uh, it's big time. It's tremendous tough. amount of work. And you often have to go through growing pains and make mistakes to sort of have a really successful one. So yeah. the fact that they had this amazingly fluid, well-run, incredible experience the first time they ever did an event was yep. just remarkable. I mean, Brad Kimes has a history uh, of professional experience as a musician. So Correct. he knew that like ambiance mattered the, the yep. music mattered, lighting mattered, and it really was a combination of like the actual event itself, the, the conference day, of like rock concerts meets Tony Robbins event, you know, meets sort of this blockchain experience. So I don't think there's ever been a thing in the space yeah. like that. 
I, I think you're right. I, there was a ton of substance in the conference. Um, my favorite panel was the, um, well, your panel that you led was was damn good, was solagenic and, and uphold. Uh, but I thought the uh, the link to uphold PolySign panel, uh, which was led by um, Will Petruski, I think is his name, at um, at Link2, had Joe Endozo there, had Robin, who's the CFO, I think, of Uphold, but he's also running, I think he's the president of what they call uh, Uphold Enterprise now, so like a business-facing uh, version of, of Uphold. And to hear them talk, um, and, and then Jack McDonald, of course, from PolySign, um, to hear them talk about uh, their excitement about XRP, uh, how important uh, everyone in that, because, you know, when you talk about, like, investors in these, you know, in the equities of these companies, you had a lot of them sitting in that audience. Uh, they were asking about, the link to, and this is not a plug for any of these companies, although I am invested in all of them, um, but the, the way... Um, the way they were talking about, uh, you know, uh, how many people are Team Apollo members, you know, that were raising their hands and said there was some very heavy hitters just out in the audience observing this, you know, event and this panel. But um, I, Joe Endozo's comments about uh, his immigrant background and, and uh, the importance of free access and democratized access to the capital markets in order to maintain the freedom and the status of our um, of our country as an innovative leader really struck home with me. I want those comments to go viral. Very very powerful moment in the entire conference for me. Probably that was probably the number two moment um, uh, for me out of you know the Brad Garlinghouse obviously was kind of number one, um, but you know it was just a very sophisticated business conversation. Um, that, you know, every, every panel was, was, was like that. Even the, um, the panel that had uh, uh, Patrick Riley from Reaper Financial, Linda P. Jones, um, uh, Jake Claver, um, uh, the, the, the gentleman who founded Glint, uh, where they're basically talking about wealth and making the transition uh, to, to, you know, what, you know, sudden wealth syndrome and structuring things properly for your estate and, you know, not rushing out and just, you know, buying depreciable assets, but actually investing in cash flowing assets with your kind of newfound wealth is kind of a step one. Very, very powerful information uh, that was really, really good uh, to hear uh, them, them say that and stuff. So, and of course, your panel was really fantastic. I thought Molly did a really great job <laughs> um, uh, hosting that panel. You know, it was among the more sophisticated conversations about the tokenization of assets and securities that I've ever kind of been a part of. And I think that's because of your knowledge and leadership in the in the industry as well is really, really good. So yeah, it's, it, it, it wasn't just like a, a pep rally for XRP. This really felt like the cutting edge elite of the new financial system is what it felt like, where everybody really gets it and, um, you know, having just come from consensus, uh, where it was a very, uh, I'd say, developer proof of work and derivative proof of work type environment where, you know, um, you know, it's just, it, it's weird. It's weird the, the type of stuff that, you know, kind of the more Ethereum uh, focused uh, tech technologies and companies are, are looking to do versus what 
you know, this kind of revolutionizing the capital markets uh, that clearly the XRP community seems to be much more focused on was was really powerful to me because uh, that's, you know, it's all the money, right? And one thing I just noticed when I was kind of walking around the room after the, the panel I led was done is that the room was packed all day. Like people didn't yeah. leave. I mean, we had a lunch break or whatever, but yeah. most industry events, usually by the afternoon, there's, it's thinning out for people sitting in the audience. For sure. But the people oh, yeah. there yeah. stand those things. <laughs> the people there were in their seats until the last minute when we all were sort of cheering each other. It felt like a concert where you did not want to leave and miss the last song. I mean, I'll tell you a good anecdote about that. Um, and I was, I was frankly embarrassed when it happened. Uh, so I kind of sat in the back and just randomly picked a seat. And it turns out I, I sat next to a midstream executive uh, from Canada. And so at some point, you know, I was telling him about Delta Wave and like bringing up the Delta Wave website and taking him through some stuff. And we're sitting there like it's just euphoric chatting, you know, and the the, the couple in front of me, I mean, just turned around and gave us this look like, and they were just like, shh. Like, oh my God, I'm, I'm so sorry, you know, because people were dialed in. I think that's when uh, Quincy Jones was speaking, actually. He was up there by himself, and that guy's like, I mean, he's, he's a true genius in our space, right? Uh, it was really cool to hear him just kind of extemporaneously uh, talk about technology and where this is going. Uh, all, all the different, you know, avenues to explore uh, in this new ecosystem was was really cool. So anyway, yeah, I got I got shushed because some people were like, <laughs> and, and I was way in the back, you know. I mean, they <laughs> people were riveted. People were riveted to the very sure. end of it, which is pretty yep. cool. And so then it I, ended too fast, right? Yeah, I have zero doubt that first of all, it's going to be much larger next year, mm -hmm. and it's going to sell out quite quickly yeah yeah so we gotta we gotta like put put an order in now with 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 kimes right so go go ahead and put us on the waiting list make a deposit you know there's a lot of conference type things for other sort of lanes within crypto like block you know bitcoin miami and eth has several different things but this is the first one that's really just all about xrp so if this is your mm -hmm. area your lane and you didn't go to this year, like you need to go next year. Like it was such you know, a- uh, What we didn't really have a lot, which you'll even see when you go to Bitcoin Miami or even consensus is kind of like booth set up where you've got other vendors and stuff like that. I expect next year, I mean, I'd love Validil to have a, a bigger presence at next year's event. Um, and may, maybe some of the companies that we sponsor will be uh, part, of, part of that as well. But you, you could see it definitely growing from that perspective. Um, yeah, it'll it'll certainly be bigger and better next year. And I think I think Ripple will play more of a role um, um, next year than than they did even this year, mm -hmm. uh, which was which was kind of cool. I did actually speak to Brad Kimes the other day, and the plan for next year is to have an exhibit hall. Okay, that makes and sense. One of the things that's really exciting is. I have to believe that this SEC Ripple case will end <laughs> and it will end hopefully like by this summer. So let's just say hypothetically that happens and we get clarity on XRP, which is for many of us thinks it's sort of showtime then and we're going to see showtime. a lot of development on the ledger. 
So think about how many startups who have launched in the last six months and are finally getting traction will get to participate in this event next year to introduce right. their cool stuff to all of us. So I think the it's going to feel quite different because there'll be actually a lot more stuff being built on the ledger once right. the case is done. And for this, that to be the inaugural event that you go and introduce your brand to everyone. And I know yeah. some of the Valho brands would fit in there in that same capacity. For sure. And like, you know, spin the bits will be huge, like immediately once exactly. we have clarity and they're able to truly come into the U.S. market in a way they can't right now. Uh, Flare naming, you know, launched while we were there. Uh, mm -hmm. Shout out to my friend, you know, my fellow Texan, Brad Martin, who we got to spend a little time with while we were there. They hooked me colleagues. up with Molly.Flare, so I I'm never, usually you don't get like your first name .com type thing. So right. Nice. Yeah, that's that's super cool. Um, so there were, and then of course there, you know, the the, the bigger businesses uphold and and linked to, and um, obviously Ray Fuentes was was master of ceremonies, kind of kind of with with you. Um, now it was it was cool, but yeah, next next year I'm I'm confident there's going to be. A much a lot more logos on the uh, on on the right. screen and on the uh, you know gosh we'll, we'll probably even start to to have maybe some some commercials and stuff for the brands you know in the you know turnovers of the of the people and stuff like that but um, yeah really really great job congratulations uh, Brad Kimes is what Danielle Digital Perspectives I mean kudos and I know that a a professional team manage the video recording. So right. we're going to be able to all watch a lot of these clips for the whole oh, next good. year. We'll relive good. it on Twitter. Uh, actually, I asked Brad if he was going to sell the recordings as like a package or a product. And he said, no, he's going to give them away so that everyone can enjoy it and watch it and get excited right. for next year. Good, good. Uh, well, you know, I, I definitely, uh, I've, I've talked to, to Brad and, uh, and Ray Fuentes about getting uh, Joe's comments out, and um, everybody really needs to see that. Our regulators need to see that, right? Because it really was an expression from the heart of what it truly means to be American and be free, and then participate in our, you know, capital markets. Um, it seems like a lot of, um, you know, and it's it's it isn't like this has just happened. This has been going this way for for quite some time, but. Um, you know, the regulators seem to have lost their way and who they're really there to uh, to support and uh, and help thrive and grow. And that's the people of this country. And so, you know, doing things like raising the, the level of what it takes to be accredited investor makes no sense but to keep people out from having access. It needs to be going the other way. We need to be, you know, re reducing the, you know, and th that was some irony to me, right? So we, we had this whole conversation about, accredited investor standards and stuff like that, which, um, you know, you basically have to be a millionaire more or less or make, you know, you know mid-level six-figure income, you know, over a period of several years in order to be uh, considered accredited. But how does that democratizing, you know, the capital markets? It's not. It's creating barriers to entry. And the uh, the, the irony and the contrast of, of being in a casino where you could literally take your entire life's fortune and right. bet it on black for one spin of the wheel or one, you know, put it, put it, put a come bet on for one roll of the dice and they would gladly take your money and 
you know, there, there'd be no recourse for you at all, uh, that we've got this system of, uh, and I'm all for most of the security, certainly the, the broader idea of the securities laws being a disclosure regime and, you know, having, um, having financial statements that are actually true and, and audited and people held to account for when you try to, you know, uh, fraudulently uh, cheat someone out of their money for, from a, a, a damn good business story. I think that's, that is a important and, and appropriate regulatory function um, uh, in the capital markets. However, what we're learning is that's not what's happening. The, 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 the Madoffs and the FTXs and the JP Morgans and the, you know, the people who are pulling off the largest scams, the MF Globals, I mean, the Enrons, they're, they're, they're all like getting right through and, and, and basically, you know, hand in hand with the regulator and, and nothing's ever happening. Uh, where is the, the, the innovators and the people who are, you know, legitimately raising capital uh, for, their, for their projects uh, are kind of left to have to, you know, wander through this morass of, you know, encyclopedic regulation and, and opaque clarity. And, you know, it's like Gensler sitting before, I'm getting off topic, I know, but it's like Gensler sitting before Congress, you know, there a couple of weeks ago, and when uh, Patrick McHenry, McHenry's asking him, um, you know, is Ether a security? It's a very direct question, right? It's not like they haven't had, what they launched the Ethereum network in 2015. So it's been eight years. And he answers that question with like the Howie test. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. He looks like a clown on TV, the whole thing. Um, the, and he makes, he, he makes the agency and therefore the government look like they have no idea what they're doing. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really time for people to um, to grow up and let, let let's move on. Let's set this this industry free because it could be very transformative for uh, for you know the American capital markets. There's been chatter for a while that they may raise the accredited investor limit even higher from one yeah, million, 10 to million. 10 million. Yeah, and I think in light of what you just said, it makes it so clear that none of that is about protecting anybody. It's about ensuring that nobody moves up in the caste system, that if you are born into a lower level of the caste, that you stay there, and things like private equity investing are reserved for those who are born into the upper level of the caste, uh, and has zero to do with protection of anyone. I, I agree 100%. Um, it, it's, it's lost its way. It's like, you know, if there was a heart uh, of that system before it was about, you know, protecting people from being fraudulently, you know, duped out of their, their savings. Uh, that's, that's not what's happening anymore. It's like, there's a gate that keeps smart, intelligent people from even, you know, putting their money to work, uh, which keeps them in a, in a debt slave system where you got to keep reporting, you know, to the nine to five or whatever, um, to, to, to make ends meet. And that's, you know, that's not good. And I'm on the fence about even whether there should be a test of some sort of financial literacy, because I don't really think it's the government's role to tell me what I'm allowed to buy based on somewhat of a subjective criteria, because this test would obviously, it's subjective to determine whether or not I am intelligent or educated enough to buy like some private equity from Link2, for example. 
Mm-hmm. So what do you think? Should there be a test or is that really not the government's role? Well, uh, you know, I, I think the problem with, with trying to determine if the test is a good idea is because you're relating it to what it would otherwise be, which is you're not financially wealthy enough to get over the gate. Um, so in the context of looking at otherwise not being able to participate, you know, a door into the market that requires a test kind of seems like a good alternative, right? Uh, but the reality is the problem's really the gate in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, look, that we got we to gotta take it back to, you know, the, the, the genesis of the securities laws came out of the Great Depression, and there were a lot of people that, I mean, I got to, you know, we live in a world now where financial instruments are traded 24 hours a day, seven days a week in, in an electronic format. There's AI controlling a lot of this stuff. I mean, it's the velocity of the way these securities move is, it's a next level mind blowing type of thing. It's controlled by a lot of major financial institutions. Back at the time that this was an issue, there were literally you know, hucksters, you know, sitting out in front of the wall of Wall Street, you know, like writing on pieces of paper. There you go. You got some shares and you got some shares and you got some shares. They were literally like sitting around trees, you know, basically. And so how would they even know if they'd written out too many shares and they had gone past the authorized, you know, capital of of a company that they were. So, um, we're talking, you know, these rules came out of a very wild, wild west type environment where people could literally just give you paper and there was nothing there. And there were a lot of very, you know, uh, aggressive salespersons who were basically just floating paper, right? So that's where these laws and these disclosures start to come from, uh, starting to have, you know, things like underwriter liability uh, for, you know, people to in order for the, you know, what, what has now grown into the investment banking, you know, institution or, and, or, or, or industry was really a way to make sure that the people who were selling, you know, stocks to the, to the common person had done at least some modicum of due diligence on the company that they were supposedly looking at and weren't just, you know, helping facilitate the, the fraud. So the, it all starts at a good place all after you know, in the, in, the, in the years after basically the financial system had failed, you know, we'd had the 1929. So we're, we're in, we were still in at that time, the Great Depression. That's where these rules, you know, start to be bubbled up. And the, 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 the securities laws, the 1933 Act, the exchange rules uh, that require the, the periodic reporting, the 10Ks, 10Qs, 8K, all that regime is 1934 Act. So these, you know, we're, was that we're 90 years into that system and the way technology and and the way the infrastructure of the capital markets has evolved it's just it it, it doesn't it almost doesn't make sense uh, in the way that that capital moves in the world which you know and then blockchain and this fintech stuff we're talking about it's it's even an iteration beyond that so um, there we, you know, there were a lot of people back in the in the late, you know, in the 29, 30, 30, 31 time period, they were clamoring 
these people just ripped me off. You know, government, you got to save me from, you know, these hucksters basically just giving me pieces of paper that don't mean anything. And, um, and you know, we need to kind of go back to being responsible for ourselves. You know, if you want to take a risk with your capital, you can obviously go into any casino in Las Vegas and take that same risk, right? But at least you're playing a game. I mean, there, there are some odds. They aren't very good, but there's some speculative odds that you will win on the thing, the bet that you're making. Um, it's not all that different in the capital markets, but these are people making representations that they actually have some type of business, expected cash flows. You know, they've got assets that, you know, you can have recourse against. When you get that share of stock, you actually have some portion of ownership in something real, right? So, but, you know, buyer beware, you know, caveat emptor. I mean, even there's a reason we do due diligence to this very day on companies, you know, I, I spent my whole career doing M&A transactions and stuff. We did a lot of due diligence on the companies we bought, and they may have been public companies, or they may have been, you know, very successful uh, private companies. Uh, but you, you didn't just like take people's word for it. So. so that's an interesting nuance that I don't think is brought up a lot. That the securities laws, from what you just said, are really about the, the person, the entity raising money, the seller of the equity making right. sure that they are transparent and honest, where now it's kind of gotten flipped to all right, who's allowed to buy it. You have to meet these somewhat subjective criteria to be allowed into the playground. And so if we instead go back to focusing on the issuers to make sure they're on the up and up and you know less about who's allowed to buy it. And just for the record about the test, like I'm all for letting as many people who want to get into the private equity world do so. If, especially if they don't meet the financial criteria, I'm just reluctant to have the government in charge of another way to, to screen people in a subjective way. But I think should we focus back on the issuers, as you just said, the law, the, the nature of the law was about. 100%. And that, you know, that's front and center in this lawsuit that we've been following for, for the past two and a half years. Um, this is, you know, there's this excellent law review article that was attached to, I think it was Paradigms, uh, which is, is a private equity venture capital type, you know, equity group, uh, wrote a, an amicus brief in connection with the, uh, the, the Ripple case in support of Ripple. Uh, but there's a, a law review article attached to that that did an exhaustive survey of every case, every appellate level case. I think there's it's like 260 or 270 cases at the appellate level that have evaluated the Howey test. And in every, in every securities case ever in securities law history, there has been something called, which you just said, an issuer of this, either equity or debt, right? There's either somebody trying to issue equity or there's somebody floating some debt as bonds or whatever, right? So, uh, the analysis that they came through is that there's never in history, obviously, because the whole the whole rubric of the securities laws are based on the issuer and the representations that they're making in connection with, you know, issuing whatever the security is. They said that in the conclusion of the law review article is you would have to invent a whole different thing in the securities laws called an issuer independent security, which means there is no issuer of the security. So who the hell is gonna, who's gonna do the disclosures, right? 
and and this does feed in, you know, this is this is what this is the the fancy, you know, fancy kind of song and dance that the Hinman, you know, speech did and this, you know, perpetuating this decentralization thing. I'll remind people that, you know, after, you know, Bill Hinman made his speech in um, at the Yahoo uh, summit in, in 2018, he, he kind of did a little bit of a road show. He, he went on to CNBC and he was going to these uh, uh, law schools and, you know, speaking to the division. He was talking about the way we interpret things and all this stuff. Jay Clayton did the exact same thing. He went on a speaking tour referring back to um, Robert Jackson, I think was another commissioner who would, you know, very commonly refer to him and gave a speech, you know, gave a speech where they talked about this decentralized component. But when probed about what decentralization, decentralization meant, Bill Hemman would say, we don't see a third party promoter. Okay, well, what that was French for, or actually English, but you might as well think it's French. What it was French for is uh, an issuer. There's no issuer here. You know, it's the, 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 the product project is so, you know, to use their word decentralized, it's, it's th that there is no one person who can drive anything about that particular thing. So there is no one to actually impose these disclosure regimes on. So um, that's, that's really, that's really. That's why I think okay. Spend the Bits is such a great example. And, and Jay from Spend the Bits was at the XRP event this past weekend. And then, you know, he has a payments platform. We would love to help businesses use Spend the Bits wallets for things like payroll and accounts receivable. And it has absolutely nothing to do with Ripple whatsoever, but he's not able to really operate his business in the US as freely as he could or should because of the cloud of this lawsuit, which is unfortunate. So that's cloud one of the things cloud. I'm so excited about for this case to end is for Spend the Bits to be able to accelerate in their adoption. Yeah, all of our, you know, our different, you know, investments that are looking to, to you know, make the XRPL our home, it's, it's the same issue. And what it really comes down to is being able to connect up with the banking system. Uh, you know, the banks just won't won't touch because, sure. you know, and and unfortunately, they're able to point at the lawsuit and use that as subterfuge or an excuse not to, to underwrite the business, not unlike you would if you had a, a cannabis business. Right. And it's like, well, it's not legal, you know, nationally. So we can't we can't be having that that type of you know, proceeds from those types of businesses running through the banking system. Uh, they're basically taking that same type of approach, and that's what's keeping a spin the bits from like going ape on the payments market in in the United States. I mean, they are poised and ready to go. Uh, it's been a good thing for them, I yeah. think, to a certain extent, because they've been able to increase their development so much, kind of you know, behind the scenes. That I think they are absolutely ready to go uh, when when they get unleashed. But yeah, it's, it's sad. It's just a sad situation. That's a great point, though. I, I've been operating under the assumption that once this lawsuit ends, a lot of these obstacles will be removed. But we still have this issue with the banking system not being very friendly to a lot of businesses that want to use digital assets. So I guess we'll have to wait and see if, if this lawsuit ending will actually clear that up or if they won't budge until they, they decide they want to. Well, you know, the, the banking system's got its own problems. 
Right. That's that's what we've been talking about right. almost for the sure. last last several uh, episodes of Escape Velocity. Um, you know, if this plays out a few more months, they're just, I mean, they're not going to have a choice, right? It's like you're either going to be in business or you're not. Um, this this is the most efficient way to move value, uh, and it's it's super not necessarily efficient, super cheap. So um, it's going to be in everyone's interest. It, it already has been for two years, and and everyone's interest to move forward with the adoption of technologies around the rest of the world um, is 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 doing it. And, and well, well ahead of us. We can catch up, you know, I think we are falling very far behind, but, you know, we are, uh, we're next level in this country, you know, when it comes to technology and innovation and all that stuff. But we have to go back to our core values, which is freedom, you know, lack of regulation uh, and these, these types of things and, and let the industry th- thrive. We'll, we'll catch up. Um, and we'll we'll make a we'll make a dent in the universe as well, but uh, it's it's just it's long past time for that to happen. I think. I agree. The level playing field means that we have to wait too. That's part of the deal. Level playing field. All right. There was something else I wanted to talk about today. What you want to talk about? I want to talk about this exciting, crazy set of developments between Twitter, Tucker Carlson, Elon Musk. I feel like we are at this key pivotal time in history. We are watching the world of media evolve very, very quickly. Yes. And you know, our entire lives, the mainstream media has effectively managed perceptions and gated information in a very orchestrated way. That's become increasingly obvious the last couple of years in case it wasn't during like the Gulf War, for example. Right. Uh, but Tucker Carlson, Obviously, household name, big show on Fox, fired, shocked everyone. And the question became, well, what's he going to do? Is he going to join like another news network or whatnot? And so the fact that he's going to be an indie kind of independent reporter running his platform on Twitter and Twitter's now enabling micropayments, which means that Tucker can be financially compensated without having to bring in this advertiser route. I think it's game changer. I've been so fired up about it all week. I I agree. Uh, And it's going to, gosh, think of all the content creators in in our, you know, sector who Mm -hmm. are going to be doing the same thing and starting to monetize, you know, their content on Twitter in this streaming payments, you know, type of a way. Um, You know, kudos to to Elon Musk and uh, and Tucker on, on this move. I think... You could see they had that interview. What was it like a week before he got he got uh, pushed out of Fox? That they had that interview together, mm-hmm. where Elon's talking about the importance of free speech, talking about really doesn't take that many people to to run Twitter and and all those like really great sound bites that came out of that interview. I was I remember watching that thinking, there's something cooking here. You could almost like feel it, like you know I, I'll bet you know in between takes or you know, before or after, you know, Elon was going, you know, Tucker, you ought to freaking come do do a show on here. You got this massive following. He produced, uh, Tucker for a while now has been t- telling the truth, you know, and you could tell that uh, he, he believes in free speech. He believes in the, the values of this country and what makes this country great. That's why he's got such a 
a massive following still on mainstream media. Um, so good, you know, and Tucker, I mean, what a, what a great strategic rabbit out of the hat type thing he's done. I'm super excited about it. Uh, and I'm, I'm not only excited that we're going to have, um, you know, top level conservative commentary, um, and, and free commentary on Twitter, but really that this is, as you said before, it's a paradigm shift in how media is distributed and disseminated among people. Um, I, I think you're going to see a lot of, um, you know, you're going to see YouTube type businesses start to go this direction, uh, music start to go this direction, you know, with, with the ability to implement the streaming of content in a way that, you know, value is generated and transmitted in a streaming type of way, which digital assets for the first time truly makes that a reality. Um, this could be next level. And, you know, the, um, the, the, the constituency is global now. I think there, there used to be, you know, when in the heyday of mainstream media, it was a very like American audience. And then a UK audience got something very different. And a Pakistani audience got something. A Japanese audience got something very different. Now it's like it's a universal type message uh, that, that's out there. It's very pro the people. Um, so I'm, I mean, it, it, it hits at the values that to, to me are super important. I mean, even what we were talking about just before about the democratization of the financial, the capital markets, right? It's it's all kind of, it's all the same thing, you know? It's access to true information, actually being able to learn the truth and discern the truth, being able to use your money and your property in the way that you want to uh, with no, you know, no parent, you know, and I'm using that metaphorically, so they're like, you can't do this, that, and the other because you're not rich enough or you're not smart enough or, you buy into too much misinformation or this type of stuff, or you need to take a vaccine or whatever it is, you know? There's an expression in media and especially online media that if the product or the website or whatever is free, that means you are the product. Mm -hmm. And we've sort of seen for the last 25 years, the growth of data as an industry. And you'll use Facebook, for example, because I, I think they have the most advanced ad platform that I've ever seen. It's incredible in a scary dystopian way because they know so much about users that is then turned around and monetized. And as a user, you don't really have much say in that. And the other reality is, is that when, when you have a business, the, the entities who pay the bills have power, they have authority because if mm -hmm. they decide they're not going to pay those bills anymore, the business has a problem. And so for the last 20, 25 years, especially, I mean, this goes back to the begin when TV first started, but the advertisers have been footing the bill for content. So if a very large advertiser, there's a couple of industries that are sort of known for this, if they don't like the coverage of a topic, they have the authority to either have it changed or pulled because the threat of them leaving, it just causes too many problems for the business. So this was how a lot of the censorship worked from a logistical standpoint is, you know, major advertiser doesn't want coverage of a particular topic, even though the people want it and the people need to hear it and it's in the best interest of the people to hear that. There is, it was like this three-legged stool where one of those legs had way more authority in the situation than another. And I, that's why I love this idea of micropayments so much 
It's not that I necessarily want to pay for content that I've been getting for free, but I, it's a more transparent arrangement. Like I know I'm paying for it. There isn't this third party coming in to manipulate things to protect their own interests. And, you know, I've worked with advertisers for a long time. I think the majority of advertisers are great people. They support great organizations and have good intentions. But all you need is a couple of bad apples to sort of spoil and ruin trust in, in the media system. And we've, at least the last couple of years especially, have seen that, you know, when the media's misrepresenting things, I mean, you call it lying, but it's usually more subtle, where they just sort of omit things and kind of spin things and just have you look at a situation through a, a, a lens that isn't necessarily accurate. Mm -hmm. it, people do things in response to that. So like if the, if the media is misleading you, the consequences are huge. I mean, people do things in response to that. They're fearful of things they maybe shouldn't be and they don't go places or do go places as a result. So the fact that like we're moving away from that towards a more honest, transparent world, like. It's going to change a lot of things for the better because we're not going to be <laughs> played with in the same way that we have been for decades. So I know it's just yeah. starting with Twitter, but Twitter's huge. So for Twitter to... Twitter's huge. 384 step, million users, I think, globally. So for Twitter to step away from this dependence on ad revenue exclusively to mm -hmm. allowing content creators to monetize, I, I'm confident that the rest of the content platforms will follow. I mean, YouTube's another great example. Uh, content creators are paid on YouTube. You get a cut of the ad revenue. You have no say in who those advertisers are. So you might put a lot of work into a video and then brands that have like nothing to do with you are contextually shown in the ad. But it'll be interesting to see if YouTube evolves towards streaming payments or micropayments and away from the ad model to put less pressure on content creators on YouTube to have to cater to certain political agenda. Yeah. It should be more like, you know, like musical concerts or things like that, where it's kind of a butts and seats type of model. Like if, if you've, if your content is commanding attention, uh, and we, there's a, there's a lot of reasons why it would be a big one is because you're telling the truth. Uh, people naturally gravitate towards that. That's why DAI and Brad Kimes are such huge, you know, personalities in, in our sector is because they, they tell the truth. Um, you know, you, 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 that's that's what this model starts to to allow to do. It's it's a true free market type situation, right? Where the 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 people who are consuming the content are the ones paying for it, and they're naturally, if you are paying for it, even if it's this micro payment level, which also is an, a brilliant thing because it's going to increase the velocity of money. That's I mean that that's how you get an economy humming and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, it, it's, it's really, it, it's a, it's a re-democratization of, um, of the media and, and that is profound. The other thing you, you mentioned that point about omission, uh, in, in Tucker Carlson's, you know, video they just released yesterday where, you know, he said, you know, so we're going to do this show on Twitter. He talked about this. He said, you know, uh, we, you know, we're, we're told to tell you the truth in mainstream and, and for the most part. The things we may say in the four corners of what is said is the truth, but you don't know what we're we're omitting from the story. And it could be what we're omitting, which makes all the difference. You know, ironically, the securities laws address this kind of head on. We have a rule called 10B5 
and it's you know material misstatements, material misrepresentations, and material omissions. And it, it gets at this exact issue. So if on your financial statements, you know, uh, you tell them about, you know, Exxon tells you about the great discovery they had in Prudhoe Bay or whatever, you know, or uh, off in the North Sea of Alaska and how, you know, that, that one discovery is going to, you know, be so many billion dollars in revenue in the years to come looks pretty good. But they didn't tell you about the, you know, billion dollar explosion environmental disaster that happened. Well, that's a material omission, right? So, um, you know, the, the, in any kind of, you know, material contracting type situation, it's, it's both things required. It's not only telling the truth, but, but not failing to tell the whole truth. You think about a, when you get sworn in to testify, you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, you know? So help me God. So this is all really positive developments. Uh, I'm, I'm starting to feel much more positive about where we're headed as a as a country as a as a world uh, by these little things like that that may seem little now but you know these ripple effects of these things pun not intended can be pretty pretty material for our quality of life i agree i mean this was a pretty positive exciting past week we had our event in vegas and then to sort of see the world of media take a leap forward in a positive way for humanity uh, I feel like we've got a lot to celebrate this week. Yeah, for sure. So you got big plans for the weekend? I'm not sure yet because it's only Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> you are off on vacation, so I guess we won't I see am. you for all another week. Yep, we are headed to the beach uh, tomorrow, kind of tomorrow afternoon. Got one more meeting uh, uh, tomorrow on a project you and I are working working with. And uh, after that, yep, I'm, I'm out of here. And for those of you watching next week, I'm actually going to have a, a special guest on that I'm interviewing about tokenized real estate, which is going to be really cool. That is definitely an area of incredible opportunity for the future. How people buy and sell real estate is going to change in a massive way. And we're going to have an industry expert with me to break it down for us. That's going to be a good one. I'll be tuning in. All right, All right everybody. We will see you next time.